1: Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I recently had the pleasure of talking with one of my colleagues from the University of British Columbia, Chris Mole, about his book, Attention is Cognitive Unison, an essay in philosophical psychology that came out with Oxford in 2011. Now, paying attention or directing attention at something is, and this is a phrase and a concept that we use all the time and that we tend to take for granted. I am paying attention to the pineapple behind the microphone. Why are you not paying attention to what I'm saying? So on and so forth. Um, we, we use this phrase or these phrases all the time. What Moles book does is it uses a really beautifully elegant argument, and it's an argument that extends throughout the book, to propose an idea of what attention is. Um, What does it mean to pay attention and what you know, what relevance does the answer to that question, or rather does Moles' proposed answer to that question have, for how we understand a much broader theme in STS, um, that is the relationship between philosophy and science, um, in particular the relationship between philosophy and psychology. So even though this is very clearly um, a book that's very deeply rooted in the disciplinary conventions of philosophy, it's a book that's, I think, potentially of very wide relevance to scholars of STS in that it's trying very explicitly to speak to and to work with um, that divide uh, or that, you know, the divide that doesn't necessarily have to be as firm um, a divide, namely philosophy and science in the philosophy of science. So we had a great time talking about the book and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Hi, Chris. Hi. We're here today to talk with Chris Moll about his recent book, Attention is Cognitive Unison, an essay in philosophical psychology. And that just came out with Oxford University Press in 2011. Chris, thanks so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Now, this book is, it's a philosophy book. It's actually meant, if I read correctly, to speak not just to audience of philosophers, but also to an audience who um, is interested in the problem of cognition more broadly. And speaking as someone without training in philosophy, um, reading this, it it was really a wonderful experience. I learned a lot. I think it's um, for listeners out there who may not have had the chance to read it and or may be a little scared initially as I was to pick up a philosophy book. If you don't have training, don't be scared here. Um, It's written in an extraordinarily clear way. It speaks to lots of different fields, and um, it's uh, I learned a lot. So thank you so much.
2: It, it is a book of philosophy, but it's meant to be. Uh, I particularly have an audience of psychologists in mm-hmm. mind, and I'm aware that some psychologists are wary of philosophy, mm-hmm. and perhaps justifiably so. And and so I, you know, the, the, the need to strip out too much in-house apparatus. Uh, was something I tried to do but inevitably you can't do that all the way through I, there's there was some discussions of the niceties of causation by attention which inevitably incur into metaphysical territories and stuff So mm-hmm. I don't, I, I would be surprised if the non-philosophical reader understood everything in the book but I hope, I hope that there's something for all those readers there
1: and I think like um, the best philosophical works that I've read um, broadly construed do, even for somebody who doesn't come at this um, with uh, sort of a, a lot of practice or a lot of experience in reading this kind of argument, the argument here is laid out very, very clearly. And so there's a series of steps that if you read one, you'll understand what you need to know to get to and so on and so forth. So I think that works even in the causation chapter. So. So, Chris, can you start us off by saying a little bit about sort of how you got into this field and maybe how, how you decided to work on attention um, in particular?
2: Uh, well, the, the dissertation is based, the book is based on my dissertation. Um, and uh, so I came to do doing a PhD in philosophy, having done my undergraduate work in philosophy and psychology. I was always interested in topics that lie at the interface of the two. And uh, it seemed to me that um, many of the things that psychologists say about attention were making philosophical... I think they were making philosophical claims because I think um, they were making philosophical claims and sometimes they were making them in disguise. Mm -hmm. So a lot of psychologists are interested in attention because they're really interested in free will or they're really interested in consciousness or these things that are clearly philosophically difficult topics and that philosophers talk about all the time. And that as a psychologist, you just, you know, if you're going to start talking about consciousness, you're treading on philosophical toes and the philosophers will start. Uh So I think a lot of psychologists, but, but, consciousness seems really closely related to attention exactly what the relationship is is controversial and free will seems really closely related to attention right it seems that um, one of the one of the domains in which our exercise of freedom is kind of immediate and unimpaired is in our deciding what to allocate our attention to so i think a lot of psychologists talk about attention a lot and some psychologists Admits to this as a slightly disguised way to talk about these more philosophically contentious topics in a way that won't oblige them to engage with some of the more philosophical. So it seemed to me like there was loads of philosophically interesting stuff going on under the rubric of attention, and um, and loads of of philosophical good to be got from looking at that work, um, and so I, I tried to do so, and I tried to. to, to it seemed to me uh, that um, there was what's really a metaphysical assumption being made about how attention is to be explained. So if you look, if, you know, psychology is, is all sciences. Is, this isn't quite true, but made, a great many sciences emerge from philosophy, right, philosophy. Philosophers concern themselves with questions, and when they find good methods for addressing those questions, those methods are off and a discipline is born. And that happened fairly recently in history with psychologists, and, and philosophers. And so psychologists are still fairly close in time to the point where they were negotiating these basic philosophical, methodological questions. What are the kinds of the fa- facts about the mind that we can explain scientifically, and how should those explanations go? And I think what you find in the case of attention is that there's a clear you know, two attitudes to that question: how how should we explain attention? Being taken at the point when philosophy and psychology are splitting, so in works by people like William James. And on the one hand, there are people who want to say, we will be able to find an attention process. One of the things, when we, when, we, when this science gets going and when we produce our catalog of the things the brain is doing, and give our account of how those things add up to these various mental phenomena that we meet. Somewhere in that catalog of things the brain is doing, will be paying attention. And there's an alternative view that says no, it won't. (laughs) It'll be on the things on the second list, it'll be something that we account for, but we'll account for it not by having something in the brain that does it, but it'll be one of the things where the account is given by explaining how the various things in the brain work together to realise attention in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there was a dispute about whether attention was a kind of basic, thing, primary function of the brain, or whether it was more emergent, and that debate never really played out fully. It, it there was, William James had a view, F.H. Bradley had a view, but then Bradley sort of changes his mind, and um, and it's not clear that James quite understood Bradley's view. James takes himself to be presenting Bradley's view in the principles of psychology. Uh, But I think he might slightly have misunderstood what what Bradley was trying to do. And Bradley himself changed his mind. So he didn't. Um, So just because of this kind of confusion and because then philosophy, psychologists are splitting from philosophy, so they don't want to be too philosophical. I think this kind of question got lost. Um, about whether we should be looking for a process of attention or not, and I don't think it was ever satisfactorily addressed. And um, it's really that question that I was, I'm in the first place concerned with trying to return to and give an answer.
1: And in the book, um, and we're sort of, if I can jump to this, would you talk about this kind of question? Being in in the terms of um, a metaphysical question, right? Hmm. So you call this a metaphysical problem, and you say in here, um, a lot of people hear that word and they think that it means something like spooky, but actually um, it's not that at all. And so, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes, well, some people do. I mean, for some people, metaphysical does in some people's mouths mean, oh, metaphysical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I don't mean it that way at all. I really just mean, A a basic question about the kind of thing we're talking about. Mm. So the the difference between objects and properties is a metaphysical difference. These are just different kinds of things. The book is a different kind of thing from the greenness that the book instantiates. That kind of really fundamental difference as to the sort of thing we're talking about, an object or a property or an event or a... So those you know, the terminology quickly gets mm-hmm. arcane. Uh, those kind of distinctions, or what I mean by metaphysical distinctions, just what, what most basically, what kind of thing is it we're talking about here? And those are so this is metaphysical in the sense that those are um, those kind of questions aren't really the. Not really the physicist's business to decide. I'm slightly hesitant to say that because maybe everything is a physicist's business, but physicists are kind of allowed to take it for granted There's a distinction between objects and properties. events and so on for these different categories. Um, but um, so the, the 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 project of of saying what these most basic things amount to is not quite the physicist's project. It's kind of meta to physics, so that's really what I mean by metaphysics. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's above. It, it's not beyond physics because weird and supernatural. It's beyond physics because the questions it's concerned with are just more fundamental than the questions that the physicist is concerned with.
1: Right, and it's beyond also uh, psychology, right? Or or perhaps not beyond psychology. And that's so. So this is actually one of the things that mm-hmm. it seems like you're really making a contribution to here. Um, is sort of arguing, if, if I'm reading correctly, that one of the reasons that this long-standing problem of attention, um, although it hasn't actually um, gotten the kind of literature recently that it you're arguing deserves in philosophical literature, but this has been a persistent um, theme in psychological literature and was um, a very important theme early on, especially at this point of the split between, as you mentioned it, philosophy and psychology. Um, This has been important, but you're arguing here that one of the reasons why um, Bradley and James, for example, are kind of talking past each other, um, and this issue isn't resolved, is that they're not taking on this basic problem as a metaphysical problem.
2: Um, is that right or no? That, that may be right. I mean, uh, James is a much more empirical kind of guy. Um, uh, Bradley is much more concerned with is much more of a philosopher's philosopher. <laughs> um, uh, so So they had, it wasn't like they had this question, they didn't realize it was metaphysical. They had this question, they didn't really know how to go about answering it. Um, And indeed, there may not, you know, that's a characteristic of philosophical questions. Often we don't know how to go about answering them, so we do whatever we can. Um, And uh, the style of arguments I develop here, although it's Philosophical argument. I don't. You know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't do any experiments. It's highly informed by the experiments, and I think you do need to take into account all the things we find experimentally to, to when we study attention to try and work out what sort of thing it is we're studying. Um, so it's it's. uh it's some extent, I say, yeah, that's right. That they didn't quite have a clear method. Addressing this question, but I don't want to pretend that in that regard we're any better off than they are sure. and, you know, these sure. these are these are the kind of questions for which finding the method is hard right,
1: but you do propose a method, and in fact, one of the, the title um, makes very clear uh, what this theory is attention is cognitive unison, so um I think one of the major parts of the one of the major aspects of the work this book does is to present a theory of how to understand attention in this new way that you're giving us by an analogy, and so you say the relationship of attention to the cognitive processes executed in various parts of the brain is analogous to the relationship between unison and the individual performances of members of an orchestra. Um, So this is really an interesting analogy. So um, how did, where did you come up with this um, analogy and can you say a little bit about that?
2: Oh, I have no idea where I came up with it from really. It's, um, I have no idea where do ideas come from. Um, I have no idea. I suspect I was strongly influenced by Gilbert Ryle. Um, Certainly, so um, there aren't a lot of philosophical works about attention. There are coming to be some more in the recent years. Um, But before before my book, there was a book about forty years ago called Attention by a philosopher called Alan White, and. He was very influenced by Gilbert Ryle, and Ryle is very interested in these kinds of. They're they're full of all these lovely images and metaphors, right? They're very they're, the the period when they, that they they were coming out of philosophers. Metaphysics was really in the doldrums, as a philosophical discipline. People weren't building systematic metaphysical theories, and. In, that is the fate of metaphysics to be to go in and out of fashion. It's nearly out of fashion, then. Um, so rather than kind of building high metaphysical theorizing stuff, um, they they're full of these wonderful images and examples that illustrate these metaphysical points. Uh, so they think about the relationship between the fact that the bird is migrating and the fact that it's flying, doing one without doing the other, but uh, and. So they and they have some of these kind of musical metaphors. So White talks a lot about a man playing the piano and is he is his practicing, how does the fact that he's practicing relate to the fact that he's playing? <laughs> uh, so that's that's quite a nice example. But if we thought if we thought we wanted to explain practice, if we were very confused. We thought that uh, kind of, that was a good project for psychologists to explain practice, and we put someone in a brain scanner and had them practice playing the piano it would be just a clear mistake to look at their brain see whatever lights up and go look there's the practice centre no that wouldn't be the practice centre that would be the playing the piano centre or whatever it would be vision and motor and all sorts of stuff Um, uh, so so they're full of all these nice and often musical metaphors about that and the unison thing seems like that kind of thing so uh, um. I'm sure. I, I bet Ryle uses it somewhere. I'm sure I nicked it from him. Um, he has all this stuff, like you know, the, the, the the person who just is making a kind of metaphysical mistake, and they see, they see, they go around the university and they see all the colleges and they see the libraries and they see the labs, and then they say, "Well, I've seen all these things, but show me the university." We want to say, "No, no, you've made a, you've made a metaphysical Vile said metaphysical. So category, error, made a category." We're looking for the wrong, you've taken the university to be the wrong category of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Similarly, you know, you've shown me the people who are playing the violin and the people that are playing the trumpet, but now show me the unison. Why well, wouldn't say no. You've made a category error. No. That's the kind of, that's the kind of metaphysical error I think you will be making if you look in the brain for the attention process.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and am I fair to say to, to go from there to um, saying that one of the category errors that also may obtain here? is the category error that you point us to um, when you urge us that um, attention is not about locating process, individual processes and talking about attention as a collection of processes. Rather, um, it's about ad- an adverbial way of understanding. That's
2: just right. So, yes. can you so talk that's the positive that. metaphysical story. Mm-hmm. The negative story is it's not a process, which isn't to say that there might not be processes. You know, it might be, if you want to understand why the orchestra plays in unison, knowing what the guy at the front with the white stick is doing is the really important thing to understand. That might be true. It would just be a mistake to identify what he does with unison. Similarly, it might be an open question, an empirical question. It might be in the brain that there are some processes that are particularly important to understand <laughs> if you want to understand how the unison comes about. But I think it would be a mistake to to just to it, it would be a mistake to say, oh, he's the one doing the unison. It would be a mistake to say those are the attention processes. Um, so the positive story is is, this, is, is that um, to be, it's, it's adverbial, so the, the most basic facts about attention are facts about doing things attentively. Pay attention to something is always to be doing something attentively vis-a-vis that thing. often So I'm I'm paying attention now to the book on the table. I'm not touching it. I'm not doing anything with it. But I do have a task in which the book figures. The task is noting its properties. It's kind of epistemic task. I'm I'm looking at it. Uh, So you've got some task that you're doing. I say you're paying attention just as you're you're doing some task attentively. And what that means is just you're doing it. It's a task... I say that something is a task, just if it's something that you do and you're doing of it is guided by your understanding. And uh, you're doing this under the guidance of understanding. There are various cognitive resources that you can bring to bear in doing this task. And you're you're, you're paying attention if those resources are operating in unison. That is to say, if none of them are doing anything else. Just as the orchestra, the orchestra can be playing in unison. That doesn't mean that they're all playing. They can be playing an in unison even though maybe the trumpets are doing nothing at all. But the trumpets mustn't be doing anything else. The trumpets start playing some other thing. Then, they, then it's no longer unison. Unison is about not doing anything else.
1: Right. And this is this absence as being part of the way that you're defining um, attention as cognitive unison is actually a really important part of this description for Mm. listeners who haven't had the chance to read the book. um, It's so I think this is directly from the book. Full attention to something, right? So an an attention or attentiveness is what we're talking about consists not only in the range of activities centered on that thing, but in the absence of activities concerned with other things. And so this is a really important part of
2: that is from. A book, but it's not from my book. Oh, okay. That's white. That's, that's oh, okay. The, so that's uh, where, this is what areas. happens when I'm jumping around um, my notes. Okay, uh, So, but
1: but that is, it seems to be that that's actually yeah, something that's, that's, that's an important the, part of, yeah. It, yeah. It's, a, it's that which you build your argument on. It seems yeah. to be an important part of your argument as well. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I got it from your book. <laughs> 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 I got it from my okay. book. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so another thing that you said is also really important and I want to highlight it because it's not, um, one of the things about this book is that you're really not nicely um, sort of showing us the relationship between um, the sort of common sense way that we talk about this issue and the aspects of this issue that are related to your theory, Mm -hmm. um, which sometimes are important to um, sometimes the way we comment, the way we sort of talk about these issues in common, in the common sense term are important to take into account in the construction of the theory. And sometimes it's important to disaggregate those ways of talking about these phenomena from what we're talking about. Right. Yes. And so there are many ways in which that um, that obtains here and we'll get to that. But one of the ways um, that this comes in is that you use the term task. Um, and listeners who haven't read the book may not know that that's actually a key part of this argument. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? The, the idea of a task being that which we're focusing attention on. Task
2: is a bit of a term of art, but it does just mean activity that is executed under the guidance of understanding. That sounds like a terrible mouthful but it, it is meant to be a kind of i think I think I say that this is meant to be a a notion in your common sense repertoire mm-hmm. it's just that we haven't reserved any particular word of English to refer to it. Mm-hmm. I think we do have a common sense notion of things that you do where uh they're not. They, they're not just like primitive things you do, like blinking. Mm-hmm. Um, or daydreaming, or, or well, so daydreaming can sometimes daydreaming might be a task. Right? If I think, if I'm I'm trying to work out some philosophical argument and I get stuck, I might just think, right, I will daydream, and then the idea will come to me, mm-hmm. and um, and so I might kind of systematically daydream, but I might use my understanding of what it is to daydream, to sort of structure my daydreaming, and then daydreaming could become a task. But generally, it was just mind-wandering. It if it's not that, I'm not diligently daydreaming, I'm just mind-wandering, then the way in which my my daydream progresses isn't guided by my understanding of daydreaming. It just happens the way it happens. So that's meant to be the distinction between tasks and, and non-tasks, is that uh, the tasks aren't just things that... You know, your brain is doing lots of stuff. One of um, some of it consciously, some of it unconsciously. The stuff that counts as uh, contributing to the tasks you perform is the stuff that's guided by your understanding of it. I wish I had a theory of understanding. I don't really know. Mm-hmm.
1: But the, but the point here, or one of the points that's important here, um, is that understanding of what you're doing or it is an important part of this, right? So it's not just that you are accomplishing a task, it's that the processes that are going into your understanding of what it is to accomplish that task, those are the processes that need to be in unison. It's not It's not just that you're doing something.
2: No, right? that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's important for allowing um, or getting the right kind of results about cases where someone's understanding might be mistaken. They might think they can do something in a certain way, but in fact they can't. Um, nonetheless, the fact that they think they can means that those resources they think they can use can contribute to their attention, and they're not going to really distract them. Um, so that's important. Generally, I think that philosophers should talk about understanding more, actually. Um, and yeah, we talk a lot about knowledge, and a lot about belief, and, and these kind of states, and I think understanding is uh, deserves to be, to be more
1: attention. Are there any particular people who are working on understanding or sort of work, essays, articles, books on understanding that have come out, either recently or not, um, that you found particularly useful
0: in thinking through these? Mm,
2: Nothing in particular. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to make it sound like... um, I don't want to make it sound like philosophers don't talk about understanding at all. Just that it's not... uh, I have an anecdote that I often no, this yeah. sort of thing often makes me think about I, I was one, there's not many I, I was once um, I was once at a party and I was someone said oh what are you working on and at the time I was interested in um, some stuff in aesthetics and um, I was interested in a question about the role of beauty in the value of art mm-hmm. to describe, I'm interested in the role of beauty in The Value of Art, and he said, yeah, you might as well ask about the role of words in poetry. And I think he was exactly right, and I, I was sort of appropriately discouraged by that. Right? And it was like, people had said to me, like, oh, there's this really interesting question. Why does no one talk about beauty when they talk about the value of art? Right, if you look up in the index of, of books on art, you never see an entrance for beauty, right? Well, of course, if you look up the index of books about poetry, you don't see an, in, an index item that says words, right? Words are just what is being discussed. Um, people who are talking about the value of art are talking about beauty. They may not be using that, but that's, that's not because that's that's just the topic. That's, that's the big topic under which they're they are, they're working. And so, when I say philosophers don't talk about understanding, mm-hmm. yeah, right, they don't they don't give theories understanding is this
0: mm-hmm.
2: dot 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 you are understanding even though the if, and only if. Um, that's not because philosophers don't care about understanding but it is because it's kind of it's, it's the sort of scale of phenomenon that it's hard to keep in view mm-hmm. when you're doing work in the philosophy of mind um, nonetheless I think it would be I, I think mm-hmm. that difficulty of keeping these big topics in view is often the distinctive challenge of philosophical research, and I think that we don't do a good enough job of remembering that understanding, rather than just knowledge, or these kind of these kind of rational virtues, are what we're concerned with. There is there's more to the mind than that. Great,
1: thank you. Now, one of to, to sort of for a moment get back to this issue of understanding. One of the things that the book does really, really well. And actually, quite um, it's quite funny sometimes when when you're doing this um, in in a way that it's very amusing that you're using examples to illustrate and to make more clear. Um, these larger theoretical points that you're making, and so I say funny because I think there's a moment with a chameleon and some pears that I, I really laughed out loud, and that's hard to do um, picking up, you know. <laughs> I know I'm not sure that's my example, but yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I don't, yeah. but it's, it's yeah. it may not be your example, but certainly sort of, it's an example that you include in yes. the book, whether yeah. or not you are yes. responsible for inventing <laughs> yes. it. It's an, the chameleon and the pears, and maybe we'll get to the <laughs> chameleon and the pears. But um, in in terms of making clear um, something that really helped me this issue of the importance of the agent understanding what's involved in um, accomplishing the task that they are attentive to, You use the example of a clairvoyant. Mm, yeah.
2: um, so can yeah. you,
1: um, for our listeners, yeah. can you uh, relate that? So,
2: so that's meant to be this this case of, um, right, so the idea is that you've got, you, you're doing a task, that is to say that you understand what you're doing, and you' you understand what you're doing and you're doing it is guided by that an understanding and then so that you you' you counter paying attention if the various resources that you could bring to bear under the guidance of that understanding aren't doing anything else. uh so what about a case of someone that's trying to do something that just can't be done you know, someone who's trying to engage in a piece of mind reading of the sort that's crazy mind reading not just. Sometimes uses the word mind reading to just mean
1: mm-hmm.
2: everyday understanding of what other people are thinking. But I don't mean that I mean crazy mind reading, like you know, kind of do kind of, ES, Yeah, on with That's stars right. one of those guys. telling yeah. me what I'm thinking about. Yeah. So look, that guy could actually be a really paradigm case of attention, right? Those guys are rubbish at mind reading, but they might they might be really good at focusing. So what is it, what does that attention amount to? Well, I think. I think my view applies to those theories fine. There these various resources that, given this guy's weird understanding of what mind reading involves, he can bring to bear those resources in doing the task. And he's paying attention just if he's doing those resources. Now, so in actual, let's suppose you have one of these silly ESP setups, and you've got this ESP card. In front of you, and it's got a pattern of wavy lines on it, and I'm trying to read your mind in this in this peculiar fashion. And so I'm trying to keep the channels clear and focused and doing this, and I'm paying attention. I want to know what's in your mind. And in fact, what's in your mind is that there are three wavy lines on the card. And let's suppose that you're telling me there's three wavy lines on the card. I don't want to hear what you're saying. I'm trying to keep the channels clear and do this weird clairvoyance thing. I'm trying to block out what you're saying. So in this case, my weird clairvoyance is, it's actually an impairment. The thing that would help me do the task is listening to what you are saying. If I want to know what's in your mind, I should listen to what you're saying. But because my understanding is so peculiar, that doesn't count. So this guy's, He's actually going to count if he starts processing what you're saying that's going to start counting as distraction for him even though it would in fact help it's going to count as distraction so it's really important in order to get these cases right that it's the agent's understanding that defines what does it because he's got this peculiar understanding because he thinks it's all about whatever imagery and keeping the channels clear all these resources are the ones that have to be working in unison and never mind the vocal stuff that counts as distraction if he had a more Intelligible understanding of how to understand what other people are, are thinking, and he realised that listening is a good way to understand what people are thinking. Then that would count as contributing to his to his attention. So the the, the idea is that unis- you have to have unison among various processes. which processes, which processes go into the background set, is defined by the agent's own understanding of them, and if his understanding is deviant. Is in this clairvoyant case, then it's the deviant that that has to be working in unison.
1: That's really interesting. I love that that example too. That's um, one of many cases in here where you're really very effectively, I think, and very convincingly using these cases to, to illustrate this. Now, the the um, you brought up the issue of distraction, which leads me to another part of this argument. And this is a part of the book where once you've laid out for us um, in chapter four, I don't know if this is, What I'm coming to is in chapter four, it may be. um, But after this comes after you've actually laid out the components of this theory, right, which include um, this is an adverbial process. It includes the absence of activities that are not um, pertaining to the task. It includes this important definition of what a task is, that it is. Um, sort of, it's it's guided by the understanding of the agent, and so on and so forth. You give us some examples of um, possible ways that we might be confused about this, or prob- potential problems with this mm-hmm. uh, understanding, of, or th- this understanding of attention as cognitive unison. And you proceed to sort of show us how um, th- these aren't really problems. And one of the um, cases is the issue of divided attention. Yeah, right? and there are so. Again, coming back to this idea that, you know, it's natural that a reader is going to bring their own kind of common sense understanding of what attention is to bear in trying to understand this. We do have a common sense understanding of partial attention, right? Or sort of divided attention. So can you talk a little bit about the implications of that for what you're saying and how you're um, actually able to get out of that?
2: Yeah, it is is at least a prima facie problem. And... um, it's something that uh, is one of the more, more frequently criticized parts of the view, is the treatment of divided attention. So I do, you, you, you can see, even from what I've, I've said here, that you count as paying attention you have this set of, of resources that you can bring to bear on the task. If any of them are doing anything else, then that's no longer lunatic. So, the theory looks like it's going to say any degree of distraction <laughs> means you're not really paying attention. Any kind of divided attention is impossible. And I spent a fair bit of time trying to say, well, no, some divided attention is possible, but it is I do end up saying that no, it is it is true that uh, once you've got any kind of distraction, you're not really paying attention. So, so let me sort of take that in two parts. Let me first say a bit about divided attention when it is possible, and and then um, mitigate the apparent counterintuitive claim. So. The orchestra can't can't play two things in unison at once, but um, but two orchestras can both be playing in unison. That's fine, of course. Um, and so there are going to be some cases where we can divide. Okay, and so which which resources have to be operating in unison to count as paying attention to the thing you're doing? Just the ones you, can, you understand that you can bring to bear. So, if you're doing two really different tasks, it might be that the two background sets, the two sets of resources you can bring to bear, are just disjoint sets. There's, there's nothing that you, can, that you could use for one task that you can also use for the other. And in that case, my theory is perfectly fine with saying you can be paying full attention to both at once. <laughs> and I think you do. There are some now quite vintage experiments by psychologists that show in these cases where you've really got really different kinds of tasks, different input-output functions. It's surprisingly easy to divide your attention. So there's a classic experiment um, done by Alan Alport and some of his collaborators. Alan Alport, I think, is really one of the most philosophically interesting psychologists working on attention. Um, where he shows it's remarkably easy. It not, it's, it's, people find it surprising how effectively they can divide their attention between sight reading piano music and doing a verbal task mm-hmm. through headphones. How good people are, it, as you make the, the verbal task harder, make it a more complicated text, people don't get any more, don't make any more errors than the piano. So, I think you can, I think you do get this clear divided attention in these cases. So, that's nice. Um, but, and, and there's another slightly, slightly sneaky case, right, which, which, where my theory has no problem. So, I've said if the, if the two sets of, uh, uh, you've got the two, you've got these two tasks that you're trying to divide your attention between, and each task has a set of, of resources that you can bring to bear in doing it. So I'm imagining a Venn diagram of those two sets of resources. If the Venn diagram has no intersection at all, that's the case I've just discussed. Uh, but mostly it will have an intersection. So you can still have both sets be playing in unison, so long as everything in the intersection is quiet. Right? You could have two orchestras that share a trumpet section and they could still both be playing in unison and playing different things just so long as they're not both using the trumpets at that time and I think some cases of it divided attention are like that um, the example here is where you're doing something but you're not doing it in a particularly wholehearted fashion you're, you're, you're on the train looking out the window And you're watching the landscape and you're paying attention to that. And you're also listening to some music, through headphones. And you're paying attention to that. But you're not paying very full-on attention. Well, so I want to say you can be paying full attention to both listening to the music and looking looking at the landscape. But you can only pay full attention to them insofar as they both remain undemanding. If something starts happening outside the window, and now you really want to not just pay attention, but really like, yeah, pay attention. What's going on? Then you're going to stop paying attention to the music and vice versa. If something suddenly starts going wrong with my headphones and I start having to listen really find out what's going on, then I'm going to stop paying attention to them. So I can allow for divided attention, even with intersecting background sets, so long as the two tasks aren't, as long as you're prepared to do them both at the a slightly half-assed fashion. What, what, what you, so so I can allow for some divided attention. Some people think that's not enough, right? No, we can really divide our attention even when there's like, well, I'm driving and I'm listening to the, to the people talking to me and I can really divide my attention and it's magic. Um, and those cases I have to say, no, you can't really. And I don't think that's too counterintuitive, right? Really? You can really pay attention to both of those things at the same time. You're not just switching between them i mean if you switch between them we might naturally describe that as paying attention to them at the same time but really there's not any time when you're paying attention to both so in the i, I some people really have this strong idea that like, they really can pay attention and it's not this half assed case and it's not like a piano playing sight reading case and it's where there's just separate things um and i am i the theory forces me to deny that There are some other slightly funny things you can do where you can kind of, you can put together two tasks into a single super task and then pay attention to the super task. And so I have some maneuvers to make. And I think, I think one or other of these maneuvers will capture the cases most people want. There are going to be some cases where I have to say, yeah, you're wrong about that. I have to just, people who have this clear intuition that they can, they're really good at dividing their attention. I think I have to say no, you're not that good at that. And I think the evidence is um people do people's performance is actually quite impaired when they try and you know it's, it's controversial how much, but driving when you're on the phone isn't, isn't quite. a great idea. You know, people do people do struggle to divide their attention. Um Okay, so so sorry, I've gone on about that for, for longer than I intended to, but yeah, divided attention is a bit of a is is a bit of a snagging point. I have things to say, and I hope the things I say are adequate to deal with the cases, although I am also prepared to concede that there might be a place where I just have to sort of dig in my heels and say, yeah, mm-hmm. this, I'm not quite, in the whole, the whole common sense picture of attention isn't right in every regard, but that's fine. Um, the case of merely partial attention is a little bit different. So attention seems to come in degrees, it seems like. Um, yeah, I am. I am. Uh, I'm a, a lot of uh, when I've given talks about this, a lot of people have have um, have raised the concern about uh, like you're slowly falling asleep. I'm having you know, mm-hmm. in some in philosophy talks, this is often a salient kind of example. <laughs> you're slowly falling asleep, <laughs> and um, your attention doesn't just turn off; right, It slowly lags. Not because you're paying attention to anything else. Not because it's divided attention. It's just less and less attention. And I don't now. I can in that case actually. If if right, so, imagine the orchestra again. They're playing in unison, and some people fall silent. That's fine by me. They're still playing in 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 unison. That's still kind of full attention. That's still perfectly fine attention. I don't really have. Attention so I can have like performance, attentive performance fading away.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But what I don't seem to have room for in the theory is just like the attention fading. I have to say that partial attention, insofar as any distraction happens, that's not really attention. Um and I I I say that without feeling like it's a problem, actually. Um it's Uh, I think that's just how the English word partial behaves in these regards. So if we're we're talking about someone who's partially qualified for a job, uh, they're not qualified, right? They're only partially qualified. (laughs) If we we produce our specifications of what it is to be qualified for the job, those specifications won't quite apply (laughs) to the person that's only partially qualified. And I feel the same way about partial attention. I've given a theory which tells you, what it is to be attending. It's like the specifications for the job. Like if you're meeting this theory, then you're really attending. If in some way you fall short of doing it, then you're merely partially attending. So my theory doesn't, someone who's partially attending doesn't satisfy the conditions of my theory. That doesn't strike me as a problem with the theory. That seems to me like the right verdict. Mm-hmm. Partial things are meant to fall short. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And, it, and also, I mean, that is very much um... Consistent with what you told us earlier in the book, you know, this sort of uh, attending means that you, you can sort of envision the orchestra where, you know, maybe the trombonists have sort of drifted off and fallen asleep but everybody else is doing what they're mm-hmm. doing and that's still attending in some way it's when the trombonists start playing you know yeah. you know goodbye alabama and that's <laughs> not even a song but they start playing something totally different yes. and they should be yeah. that that's not attending yes. attention right yes. and so yes. i think that and
2: i think it's probably a fact about the brain a contingent fact but but the fact nonetheless that um things bits of the brain don't just shut up they start doing irrelevant stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? The brain wants to be doing stuff all the time. And, and, um, and so the case of people just, maybe if you're falling asleep, stuff just gets quieter and quieter and there's fewer and fewer resources doing the task. But in the normal case where we're just getting distracted by stuff, mm-hmm. it's, it's the case where like, uh, the things don't just fall asleep. They do start doing irrelevant things. And so attention mm-hmm. is broken
1: and you just so you just brought up the brain and so that's a really good segue for me to sort of lead us into another mm-hmm. topic here. I mean you start off the book on this set of problems with this explicit engagement of psychology and philosophy at some point in time and then we kind of go into the um the more sort of fair to say explicitly philosophical story in mm-hmm. chapter 4 mm-hmm. but then you come back out again and you, and you want to have this also be relevant to yes, what's happening in, in the sciences. And so, so can you talk a little bit about ways in which you think this particularly informs um, what's happening in cognitive science and in whatever aspect of the sciences you feel most relevant and useful to talk about? In this
2: yes, yes. Well, I think, so what happens in, um, let me do a little bit, let me fill in a bit of the history. Of course. Um, so philosophy and psychology split from one another. And they do so, as I've said, at this point when these metaphysical issues about explanations of cognitive phenomena haven't quite been resolved. And what happens then is, this is a somewhat caricatured view, but what happens then, according to the somewhat caricatured view, mm-hmm. is that people then just stop talking about things cognitive altogether and start just talking about stimuli and response. They don't want to talk about things like attention. And so these questions kind of get shelved. And then, like lots of things in psychology, at the end of the 1950s, there's this um, sudden boost given to the project of going back and looking at the cognitive stuff, looking at internal mental operations and not just outward behavior and that boost comes from the idea that you can import into psychology some conceptual resources from information theory the theory that's being used over those years to develop computers computers actually in the case of attention particularly telephone exchanges Mm -hmm. right so this and this uh in the case of attention, this in the case of linguistics, this is something sort of Chomsky's doing, and it's a big, it's a really interesting cultural moment, uh, especially for the sciences of the mind and the social sciences in general, In fact. But um, in the case of attention, uh, it, it, it's this influence of information theory happens in the work of a guy called Donald Broadbent. And Broadbent is very Im- influenced by... These considerations of channel capacity. So he he, which which are, a highly. If you're if you're uh, trying to design telephone exchanges at the end of the nineteen fifties, channel capacity is the thing you have to care about the most. Right, you've got um, bandwidth constraints. And so he thinks about attention in those terms. His idea is that, we and hugely influential idea that we have this very high capacity for taking in information from the world. Our retina is a very high definition, and we have loads of information coming in from the sensory surfaces, but we have a much more limited capacity for actually thinking about the world. And so there's this bottleneck. And so what you need to do is direct limited resources that you have. What process determines how limited resources will be allocated? The attention process. That's his, that's his story, and that's massively influential in psychology. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for the process that directs these limited capacity resources. Now, that project, find where the bottleneck is and find how it's allocated, produced a number of terrific experiments, but it never quite returned a satisfactory theory. And a lot of psychologists, uh, at least at least some psychologists, kind of gave up. Like right? thought that the concept of attention, this we had this concept of attention, which they were thinking about as in a way that was so uh, dominated by Broadbent's bottleneck sort of view, um, that this concept of attention just didn't really apply, and so. There really wasn't such a thing as attention after all. It was kind of a misconceived notion. And what has happened more recently over, I guess, now the last 20 years or so in psychology is that a new way of thinking about attention has emerged. uh, In which we think about attention as a matter of Competition, mm-hmm. and um, and I think this is a really uh, to to appreciate why this new notion of attention is really new and importantly breaks from the broad Bentian tradition. You have to understand the metaphysics. I think sorry, the, the new idea is that you have um, there's lots of processing capacity at the retina. There's also lots of processing capacity. In the visual cortex, and lots of processing capacity throughout the brain. But at any given level, certainly once you get into really at any given level, really throughout the brain, uh, what's being represented is in competition. So you have two stimuli forming within the receptive field of the neuron. Um, they're competing as to which stimulus is going to get to drive the activity of this mm-hmm. neuron. And as you go up through the through the visual pathways of the brain, these receptive fields get bigger. So it goes from being like two dots close to one another, comp- competing to two objects to two whole interpretations of the visual.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and these are all in competition, and they're in a competition that's not just it's not just a race, it's not just who's going to get there first. It, first, it's like a, it's a mutual struggle, though, trying to put the other one down. And from that kind of competitive interaction, you're going to get selectivity. And that selectivity, that emerging as the winner in this multi-level interaction, that's how things come to be attended. I think
1: they evolutionary this a metaphor, yeah? I mean, it sounds very much like an evolutionary, yeah. kind of a natural selection kind of a
2: metaphor. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I wonder whether people think about it in those terms. I don't know. I haven't myself, but that, yeah. Um, but anyway. So, um, so the thing to note about this is mm-hmm. that there, this is a, a this is there's a kind of selectivity here that has nothing to do with capacity limitation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? The fact that there's going to be one winner emerging from this competition isn't because you haven't got the capacity to deal with more than one. That is just because good competitions are so organised. Right, the fact that there's only one winner of Wimbledon doesn't mean that the players were really bad this year, right? It's because the competition's well organised that only one player emerges. So this is a theory of selectivity that's not beholden to this kind of broad Bentian idea that selectivity arises because of capacity limitation. Of course, it might be to do with capacity limitation, but now these limitations are are like the limit. The fact limitations are that I can only do one thing at once, or I can only pursue one project. It's not limitations in bandwidth in the right, limitations of just being a single organism. Um, so this, so, I, so I'm very sympathetic to this emerging new way of thinking about attention in terms of biased competition, and I think it's, I think it's I think it explains lots and lots of data, and I think it's Metaphysically, revisionary in the way I want it to be. It's no longer saying, "Here's where attention is." The attention selection happens. It's having attention being a matter of you can see how these mechanisms of competition would precisely be the kind of mechanisms that would create conditions of unison. So I like, um, and I think it, it goes in the sort of direction I want to go. But I think the psychologists themselves haven't quite realised how. The ways in which this new way of thinking is visionary. So you find some psychologists who operate within this framework and use this kind of framework when they're designing their experiments, identifying still, still kind of wanting to identify parts of the brain as being the parts that do the attention, which I have qualms about. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, give them that. Like maybe, maybe that's like identifying the conductor in the orchestra. Like right? it's not. Maybe they're, they're not saying this is where the attention is done. They're just saying this is where the attention is coordinated. But then they want to say, this they've described these systems and mechanisms of competition, and then they want to say, and there's a process happening somewhere at the front of the brain that's controlling the competition, And that process is the the attention process. And I don't want to say, no, no, you've done, you're done. It's not that there are no such processes. Of course there are. (laughs) Attention is constrained by top-up, top-down things and bottom-up things. And these more frontal, more complex, goal-directed processes influence the competition in lots of ways. But they aren't attention. Attention is the the whole competition. It's the thing that realizes attention. So i I I think um, the picture of attention that comes out of our, our most recent thinking in the brain sciences really fits with what I'm saying. That's not. That's because. Yeah. That's not. That's not because I've cleverly seen the idea. It's because I tailored my theory so that it would fit um, with what's coming out of the science. Um, but I think the scientists themselves don't quite have the right metaphysical interpretation of what of what it is exactly that they're studying. So they, they really are telling us about the mechanisms to implement attention. And it's a mistake to think that the things that are still not quite understood are the real attention processes.
1: And sort of as I I don't want to take up too much of your time today. So as we sort of come to uh, some means of, um, of concluding this, have you since the book has been published, have you had an opportunity to or opportunities to talk about this um, precise point that you just made with practicing psychologists and sort of discuss this in a sort of transdisciplinary context? And what's that been like, if so? Um, uh, The
2: the particular psychologists who I had in mind when I just made those remarks Uh about the misunderstanding of the import of their own theory, I haven't had a chance to talk to (laughs) now. Um, But... Um, psychologists I've, uh, I have, I've had mixed responses from psychologists mm-hmm. but many of them are very sympathetic to, mm-hmm. to the kind of idea that I'm that I'm advancing some of them think that some um, think that this is too the cognitive some people don't like how cognitive it is they want to think of attention as being more um, they think I'm making attention too much uh So there are certain, there are certain visual phenomena where where you're, you're, you're tracking an object, seems to be a very attention involving kind of visual task. And you can arrange the stimuli in these tasks in ways that make these objects impossible to track correctly by having them, by changing the way in which the objects move around the screen. And that sort of feature about what you can track seems to be driven by quite low-level features of the object. The psychologists whose work is very influenced by those kind of considerations often want to say that attention is really a very... That kind of visual attention is very much a visual, very much a sensory phenomenon, and to associate it with the understanding and this whole personal level, what tasks you're doing, is to kind of situate it too high up the hierarchy. Um, so some psychologists think, some psychologists think I'm sort of putting attention in the wrong place.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's your, how do you, I mean, have you had a chance to sort of go back and forth on that with them? Well, and it's, a... it, and it's difficult to pin, it's it's difficult
2: to, to to know how these kind of questions should be settled. And, mm-hmm. um
1: if it's possible, maybe you're asking different kinds of questions. Well, I, I
2: hope not. I mean, I hope that they've understood what I'm saying enough yeah. to, to to disagree with it. Um, this brings us back to what we were saying initially really, about do, this is the sort of question whereby we don't have a clear method. So it's not like there's an experiment that you can do that will settle the question. It's going to have to be broader, more a question of what, which, which research programs deliver the most fruit um, you know I tend to think that uh, this fixation on these small lab tasks of object tracking is those that's one form of attention mm-hmm. but for studying that as your paradigm is like um if you take this adverbialism seriously that's it's like Suppose, let's go back to the unison metaphor. Suppose you wanted to study unison. Suppose you were were some kind of... You were were something like a psychologist, and you wanted to study unison. And you said to yourself, right, so we need to find some simple case of unison (laughs) to study in the lab. Okay, well, it turns out, if you get undergraduates in the lab, and you have them sing happy birthday to you, it's unison, right? There's a really clear case unison there and we can study that. And then you studied that and you found out that there was stuff going on in their vocal cords and all that, right? That, you could do that. Mm -hmm. But if at the end of the day you then try to turn that description of vocal cords into a theory of unison... It would just immediately fail when you tried to mm-hmm. apply it to an orchestra order. Um, and I kind of feel the same way about this. Like The psychologist who just says, oh, I, I want to study attention. Right, let me find a really easy, simple case that I can have in the lab.
0: Mm-hmm. i get
2: some undergraduates in, I have them follow objects around the screen. Now I'll study that.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, you can do that and you can tell me about those processes. But don't think that what you're giving me by telling me about bonus processes is a theory of attention mm-hmm. any more than you're really telling me about the essence of unison by studying the vocal cords of the girl singing Have Earth idea. idea. So it's, it's you know, that's and metaphysics it, for you. And it, <laughs> it
1: really seems to get back to this initial distinction that you really want us to be drawing between process-based and adverbial or sort of a yes. means-based way of understanding what this is, right? And that, that what you just said really seems to be just another example of mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. kind of distinction mm-hmm. or that kind of approach, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, Chris, there's there's a well for listeners out there, um I don't have to tell you this, there's a whole lot more in the book um, that I would love to talk to you about, um, that we haven't had a chance to get to, really wonderful chapter on causation and sort of ways of thinking about this in terms of causality and counterfactuals. There's a lot of stuff in um, in terms of the history of the development of these ideas of attention that we haven't talked about. And it's just, it's a really rich, um, really concise study. Um, is there anything that we didn't have a chance to talk to here that you want to make a point of mentioning for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, or who might have already had a chance to read the book?
2: Um, No, I don't think so. I uh, I try to... um, At the very end of the book, I try and say... I try and gesture towards more... um, The end of the book can be a little bit deflationary, right? Because um, there has... um, There has been a little bit of a resurgence of interest in attention among philosophers in recent years. Um, And partly that's to do with the fact that philosophers have started to share this idea that I attributed to psychologists earlier on, that we might be able to illuminate things like consciousness by looking at the study of attention. And I think that's really a mistake. I really, I really think that consciousness is, um, you know, maybe there's, there's. You can answer some questions about consciousness by studying attention, but the big hard questions about consciousness remain big and hard even once the theory of attention is is in place. Um, so I, I spend quite a lot of the the last chapter, sort of saying you shouldn't really expect your the theory of attention to do that kind of. Explanatory work, but I do try and end with um, some more with some places where there is some explanatory work to do, and um, so I wanted to mention this just to kind of uh, make it clear that it's not all about the brain and it's not all about the science of psychology. Because I think attention is morally important. I think attention. I think. I think. um, In this regard, I'm influenced a lot by Iris Murdoch, who was influenced by Simone Weil. Um, That attention. Paying attention in the right ways is a necessary part of exercising the virtues of knowing how to act, um, of 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 living well. It's partly a matter of, of paying attention to the right things. And it seems uh, perhaps absurdly ambitious to think that a theory that's operating at the level of which bits of your brain are doing what could possibly Interact with uh, these larger moral questions, but I, I do want them to. I don't try and do that work myself in this book. I did a little bit in the dissertation on which the book was based, although I think correctly dropped that from. the, really? from the But I do think that there are these that the, this um, you know I don't I don't think um, the philosophy of psychology or any parts of the philosophy of science well by divorcing themselves from the rest of philosophy. Um, And I do think that there are these broader philosophical questions about about epistemology and ethics and um, consciousness and these other difficult questions that this work is meant to not answer, but is meant to fit with.
1: Thank you. And that's um, that's perhaps a really good point to ask my final question, which is, now that this book is out, and congratulations, and now that you've um, contributed to this work on this field, um, sort of revivifying this field of attention studies, what's next for you? What are you working on now? What big question or questions are exercising you right now?
2: I wish I had a nice uh, thumbnail sketch of that. Um, uh, When I finished working on this book, I worked on a bunch of other things, and and wrote a paper about smell, and a paper about poetry, and all sorts of things. but the, the next big project is about the dynamics of thinking and it's about um uh it it's it's initially motivated by an attempt to import some ideas from theoretical computer science into philosophy of mind, which is something that other people have have looked at, but I think they haven't quite realised some of the strengths of the of the of the mathematical results there. Um And I sort of use that to motivate a way of thinking about the mind in which the emphasis is placed much more on mental events and mental dynamics, and not on mental states. Philosophers of the mind very quickly pick on mental states, especially beliefs and desires and static things, when they're trying to identify the things they want to explain. I think that's a mistake. I think I think what we the mental is much more a matter of what we do. In a matter of states we have. Um, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to elaborate that as well. Yeah.
1: That's great, and that that actually sounds kind of um, similar to or vaguely similar to this distinction between focusing on objects versus events that you're bringing up in this book as well. So great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.